Well, hey, good morning again, and uh, welcome to Veritas. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Ryan. Uh, I serve here as one of the pastors, and just want to welcome you and let you know how grateful we are uh, that you're here. And if you're new with us, one of the things you need to know about us is that we really, really love and value the Bible. Uh, we believe God has spoken to us in His Word, and, and we think that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and so one of our kind of normal patterns is just to preach straight through books of the Bible. And so this morning we've been uh, walking through a series in the book of Genesis, and we come to a pretty difficult passage in the book of Genesis, Genesis uh, chapter 34. So you can start making your way there, Genesis chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, um, we've got some for you on that table over there. You can go grab one and keep it. Uh, that's our gift to you as a church. We would love for you to have uh, a copy of God's Word uh, for yourself. But Genesis chapter 34, and uh, listen, I, I just need to warn you up front, um, we are going to have to deal with some really heavy issues and subjects and topics today. Specifically, we're going to have to talk about um, things like rape and sexual assault, um, and I know that's going to be heavy, and so I, I just need you to uh, go with me in that. This is going to be a difficult thing. I, I promise you, uh, if we weren't committed to preaching through books of the Bible, uh, we would have chosen a much different passage to preach on a parent-child dedication Sunday. Um, I, I would have chose, I would much prefer to preach a much lighter and much happier passage, but uh, the truth is, if, if Jesus does not also speak into the darkest and most difficult situations and circumstances in our lives, he's really probably not worth following. Right? And so God does have a word for us in this. And, and, and please know, if you have been a victim uh, of sexual abuse, sexual, sexual assault, know that I have been praying for weeks now and have uh, gotten the guys in my community group to pray and have had conversations with and, and sent my manuscript to uh, a couple women in the church who are just smarter than me in general, uh, but uh, specifically on this issue have a lot of experience walking with men and women who uh, have experienced and been victims of sexual abuse and assault, and, and all of that in the hopes that uh, if you've been a victim of this, that this would be a really healing word from God uh, for you this morning. And all of us, whether we've experienced that or not, uh, I've been praying that we would catch a glimpse of God's heart, his vision for justice, and how we're called to live uh, in response to that. And so let's look at this together. Genesis chapter 34, uh, we'll work through the entire chapter, but we'll take it just a little bit at a time. And so look with me at the first 12 verses of Genesis 34, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the fields, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And so we saw last week at the end of chapter 33 that Jacob, uh, instead of going all the way to Bethel like he should have, he settled 20 miles uh, away from it in a place called Shechem, a place where he should not have been. Uh, and and it, it, chapter 34 tells us that at some point, Dinah, one of his daughters, goes out to see uh, the women of the land, the women, the daughters of the Shechemites. And as she's out and about, uh, Shechem, the man that this city is named after, he sees her and he seizes her and he lays with her and humiliates her. He assaults her. And, and notice that the author of Genesis uses the same language that was used in Genesis 3 when Eve saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food and she took of it and she ate. He's doing that just to show us as clearly as possible that this is sin. It, it's wicked. Like, let's just call it what it is. It's rape. It's sexual assault, what Shechem does to Dinah here. And after he does this, the text tells us that he loves her and his soul is drawn to her and he begins to speak tenderly to her. And so he abuses her even further by speaking tenderly to her and downplaying the significance and wickedness of what he's done to her. Uh, but he is the prince of the land. He's the one that this land and people is named after. And so he's used to getting what he wants. And so he goes to his dad, Hamor, and he tells his dad that he wants to have this woman for his wife. Uh, and, and Jacob hears about this, but he doesn't do anything about it at all. Uh, he, he's really completely passive throughout this entire chapter. Like he doesn't do anything, and, and he never even speaks to Dinah in this chapter. Like we're going to see a, a few chapters down the road when he feels like his beloved son Joseph has died, he weeps and he mourns and he refuses to be comforted. But, but none of that goes on here, right? Honestly, he seems completely unmoved by the entire thing. I, I don't know if it's just because Dinah is one of Leah's daughters and he doesn't care about her, just like he doesn't care about her mother Leah. But whatever it is, Jacob is just an awful father to her throughout this story. Uh, the brothers, her brothers on the other hand, when they hear about this, they are furious, uh, and notice what Moses does here. Does here. He kind of editorializes in verse 7, and he gives us this comment. This is not what the brothers say. This is what Moses is saying. He says that they are so angry about this because Shechem did an outrageous thing in Israel that must not, should not be done. Now look, we're going to see in a little bit what they do with their anger is unrighteous and ungodly, but their anger at this situation and at what he did is not. And by narrating it this way, God is giving us his perspective on this issue. This is how God feels about it. Sexual assault and abuse is a wicked, evil, outrageous thing that must not, should not be done. But, but Hamor, Shechem's father, he comes to Jacob and his sons and he says, my, my son really wants to have your daughter for a wife. Please give her to us as a wife. But he doesn't stop there. He expands this and he says, why don't we just make this kind of a, a whole community thing? Let's intermarry with one another and we'll become one people. You guys can live in this land. Uh, you can buy a house. You can start a business and we'll all live together as one big happily, happy family happily ever after. It'll be great. Uh, and then Shechem steps up and he steps in and he says, listen, Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, 
I'll give it to you. I just want to have your daughter Dinah as my wife. Look at how this sets up what happens next in the text. Verse 13. It says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And so uh, in the brothers' rage, they, they actually come up with a pretty good plan to deceive Shechem. Now, not morally good by any stretch of the imagination, but strategically, this is pretty smart. Right, so they, they say, hey, uh, you can do that. You can have Dinah to be your wife on one condition. Uh, you and all the rest of the males in your people group need to get circumcised. Uh, if you will do that, that's all you have to do. And if you will do that, uh, then you can have her as a wife. And we'll intermarry with you. We'll be one people. It'll be one uh, big happily ever after if you just do this thing. And, and crazily enough, Uh, Shechem agrees to this, so now he's got to go back to his people and convince all of his grown man friends uh, to get circumcised with no anesthesia, no pain medicine, and a dull flint knife. Uh, So let's see how that goes for him in verse 19. It says, And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city And spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And so they go back to their people, and they're like, guys, we're so close. These are good guys. Uh, They can dwell with us. We can become one people. And not only can we become one people, uh, we'll take their daughters for ourselves, and we'll take all of their stuff. Like, we'll assimilate them, and they'll become Shechemites. All of their things will be ours. We just have to do this one thing. We just have to get circumcised like they are, and if we do that, everything that is theirs will be ours. We'll be able to take it from them. And, and crazily enough, I, I don't understand how he was able to do this, but he convinces all the men in the city to get circumcised. And so all the men in the city get circumcised, and look at what happens in verse 25. It says, on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, 
all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, you've, you've got to remember, no anesthesia, no pain meds during this day. And so if you have a major surgery like this, you just kind of have to ride out the pain. You just kind of have to sit in it, right? And so uh, on the third day, when all of these men would have been the most sore from uh, this surgery, uh, it tells us that Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, they take their swords and they basically go door to door in this city and go and chop up all the men. Like they killed them all. They massacred the entire city. Uh, and did you notice in verse 26 that they actually, once they kill Hamor and Shechem, they actually have to get Dinah out of Shechem's house. He had been holding her as a captive the whole time they were having these good faith negotiations, right? Like he's an awful, awful guy. Uh, but after Simeon and Levi uh, kill all the men in the city, it says that the sons of Jacob go and they plunder all of their stuff, all of the dead men's stuff, including their wives and their children. And, and Jacob hears about all of this and he's furious about it. And notice again in verse 30 what he says and what he puts the emphasis on. It's me, myself, and I. Right? Look at it again. He says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He's completely focused on himself, right? He doesn't seem to care at all what happened to Dinah. Uh, he's just worried about what the brothers did going to be a cause for other people to come and attack him. And it's wicked. It's wicked, and Moses then gives the last word in the story to the brothers after Jacob throws his little hissy fit in verse 30. The brothers chime in, and they say, well, why does that even matter? Are we really going to let them treat our sister like a prostitute? Like, who cares if they attack us? We're not going to let them do that. And then the story just ends. Like, like that's the end of the story. And so, like, what do we, what do, we do with the story like this, right? I mean, why is this story even in the Bible? Um, because I've told you before, it's not as if we get every moment of every day of these people's lives narrated for us in the Bible. Like, there are decades worth of days in Jacob and his family's life that we hear absolutely nothing about. And, and so why does Moses feel like, out of all the things that happened to Jacob and his family, this is important enough to make it into the Bible, to make it into the book of Genesis? Because it's not like any of the men in the story come off looking good, right? Like Shechem sexually assaults Dinah and then cooks up a plan with his dad to uh, marry her. He keeps her as a hostage and a captive during negotiations. Jacob appears as a passive coward and a worthless excuse as a father uh, throughout the whole story. And while Simeon and Levi have the right motive to pursue justice for their sister, what they end up doing is not actually justice, it's vengeance. Like, justice is about giving people their due and upholding God's standards of what's right and what's righteous. And so you tell me, like, how is it justice to kill all the men in the city and take all of their stuff, including their wives and their children, as plunder uh, from this war that you started? Like, that's not justice. 
Now, should Shechem have died for his crime? Yeah, absolutely. The book of Deuteronomy even says that he was deserving of death because of this. And but, but once again, like to kill all the other men in the city and take their wives and children as, uh, pr- as prizes of war is not justice. It's vengeance. It doesn't fix anything. And, and so once again, why this story? Well, I, I think there are a few reasons. Um, one, I think this story once again shows us, uh, like we've seen so many times in Genesis, that God is able to accomplish his plans in spite of his people's failures. You see, God called Abraham's family, this family, to be distinct and different from the nations so that ultimately they could be a blessing to the nations, so that Jesus could come through their line and bless all of the nations. And God promised that he would be with them and he would protect them, that he would give them the promised land, that he would bless those who blessed them and curse those who cursed them. And so if Jacob were to give Dinah to the Shechemites in marriage and were to, they were to intermarry with this people, the distinctiveness and holiness of their line would have been lost. Like, Jacob's right. Their numbers are few. The Shechemites wouldn't have become Israelites. The Israelites would have become Shechemites, uh, and the, the distinctiveness of this line would have been lost. Like, listen, God tells his people in the Old Testament not to intermarry with these other nations and peoples, not for racial or ethnic reasons, but for religious reasons. Uh, I've told you before, but I'll tell you again, like, Moses has what we would refer to today as an interracial marriage. That's not what God was condemning. God says in Deuteronomy 7, don't marry these other people who follow foreign gods because they're going to turn your heart away from following God to worship idols. That's what God is condemning. And so God uses Simeon and Levi's poor decision here to preserve the distinctiveness of his people so that Jesus can come into the world and bless the world. Now listen, that does not mean that God was for what they did or he approved of what they did. It's that he's bigger than that and he's able to use it to accomplish his good plans and purposes of bringing salvation into the world through this broken, junked up, jacked up family. Uh, But that's not all that this story has to show us. I I think this story also shows us something significant about God's justice in the heart of God. Notice again, verse 7, this this comment that Moses adds in the story, he says this is an outrageous thing in Israel that must not, should not be done. And, And Moses gives the last word in the story to the brothers, giving the weight of the emphasis to them, like yes, what they did was not right, but Shechem assaulting their sister was wicked and wrong. And listen, once again, this is God's perspective on the issue. This is how God feels about this. Sexual abuse is an outrageous evil. It should not and it must not be done. And so listen, because of this, I want to speak to a few groups of people on this. First, if you have abused someone, listen, I don't know if anyone's ever put it to you this way before, but I just need you to know, you should be absolutely terrified. Jesus says that for those who cause his little ones to stumble, for those who abuse like this, he says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea to drown than the judgment that is coming for you. It'd be better if you had never even been born. Like the judgment that Simeon and Levi visit on the Shechemites, 
It's child's play compared to the wrath that God will visit on you if you do not repent. Like, listen, I'm telling you, maybe you think, oh, I'll get away with it. I have gotten away with it. Like, and, and I'll just be honest with you, maybe in this life, you really will. Like, maybe in this life, you really will be able to sufficiently shame your victims into silence and cover everything up so that nobody ever suspects a thing. Maybe you really will be able to hide it and get away with it in this life. But look, you will not get away with it in eternity. God will spend an eternity, that's forever, pouring out his wrath on you for your abuse if you do not repent. If you do not repent, God will not spare you from the judgment that your wickedness and your abuse deserves. Because listen, unlike Jacob, God is the defender of his people And when you hurt one of his image bearers, when you abuse one of his image bearers, he will rise up to their defense. He will protect them. He will execute judgment on their behalf, and you will not get away with it. And then second, I know that so many of you in this room, both men and women, have been victims of sexual abuse and assault. Uh, And I'm sure that as we've walked through this story, you've had the same questions about this story that you have about your own story. Where is God? Why didn't he put a stop to this? Why did he allow this to happen to Dinah? And listen, I'll just be honest. I I don't have the answer as to why God allowed this to happen to her. Unfortunately, in a world broken by sin like ours is, so often we're not going to get the specific answers as to why something like this has happened to us. And listen, if you're walking through this right now, if you've experienced this, please know that we have men and women available on our men's and women's care teams that would love to walk beside you as you process these hurts and these pains and these questions. But look, I've been praying that this would be the case for you if you've been a victim of this. Even though God does not give us a specific answer, that does not mean that he leaves us without hope. Because look, this story, as bleak and as dark as it is, I think it actually does point us to God's justice and the heart of God and the good news of the gospel. Um, I I think it's significant that the two brothers that kill all the Shechemites are Simeon uh, and Levi. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament story, you know that as the story goes on, that the priestly tribe, the the group of priests, the ones who are charged with guarding and preserving the holiness of God's people, are the Levites. They're the sons of Levi. And, And you see this pop up multiple times throughout the Old Testament, where a Levite or a son of Levi preserves the holiness of God's people through violence. Uh, In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees Israel worshiping the golden calf. He says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come over to me. Uh, And the text tells us that all the sons of Levi come over to him, and then they take their swords, and they go throughout the camp, and they kill a bunch of the men who had given themselves over to idolatry. And it tells us that about 3,000 of the men who were worshiping the golden calf in Israel were put to death that day by the Levites. And Moses says that, they were, or that the Levites were ordained that day as priests because of the way that they, they preserved the holiness and guarded the holiness of God's people and stamped out idolatry, and they did it through violence, like Levi and Simeon did here. 
right? In Numbers chapter 25, uh, Israel has once again gone after a false god, and a plague has broken out, and it tells us that Phinehas, a, a son of Levi and a priest, he takes a spear and he runs it through a couple of idolaters and kills them, uh, and it says that that stops the plague, that God's wrath was averted, and it establishes justice and peace uh, once again in Israel. He preserves holiness through violence. But look, once again, what, what Levi and Simeon do here in this text is not justice, it's vengeance, right? Like the whole reason that Moses gives the command to Israel that you should repay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a hand for a hand and a foot for a foot is so that these cycles of violence would not continue to escalate and spin out of control. So that if somebody steals your lunch money, it's not okay for you to go burn down their house and kill their entire family. Like, you don't get to do that. And what Levi and Simeon did here in response, you don't get to do, because that doesn't actually fix anything, and that's not actually justice. But even with Levi and Simeon committing injustice and giving themselves over to vengeance, the text is still clear that God hates sin and he hates injustice. He does not sweep it under the rug. He does not act like it's not a big deal. He does not just dismiss it. He hates it. He hates it so much that in the fullness of time, he actually comes to earth and pays for it himself. You see, Levi is the priest who upholds holiness with violence, but Jesus is actually the true priest who upholds the holiness of God's people and accomplishes justice by dying for sinners instead of by killing them. Listen, none of these earlier instances were going to ever be able to fully and finally accomplish justice, but on the cross, this is what Jesus is doing. He is finally accomplishing justice. He is getting rid of evil, and he is setting his world back to right. He is finding a way to crush evil and injustice without crushing us. He is paying the debt for our sin and injustice so that we would no longer have to. He is bearing our injustice on himself. And so listen, the cross, rightly understood, is the deepest source of hope for you if you're someone who has experienced injustice. Because the cross tells you that at, that at the cross, God has dealt with your injustice that you've committed and that the injustices that have been committed against you they will be paid for in full. They will be dealt with either on the cross or in eternity. None of it will escape God's gaze. He will deal with all of it. He will do this. And so the cross is this source of hope. But for it to be a source of hope, uh, we have to rightly understand it. And, and so often it has not been taught that well in the church. Uh, maybe you remember from a couple decades back, this video that used to go around that was supposed to be an illustration of the gospel, and uh, I think if you grew up going to youth group in the early 2000s, you probably will. Um, it was this video of a father who was a railroad conductor, and uh, he took his young son to work with him one day. His son was like six or seven, maybe eight or nine years old, and so uh, while his dad is kind of up in the box working, his son is playing and uh, he gets trapped on the train tracks as an oncoming train is approaching. And so this oncoming train is approaching, and his dad sees what has happened. He knows he doesn't have time to go and get his son out of the way before the train is there, and so now the father has to kind of make a choice, right? He, he can decide to keep the train off of the tracks and kill everybody on the train and let his son live, or he can 
put the train on the right tracks, save everybody on the train, uh, but kill his unsuspecting son to have to do so. And in the end, that's what he ends up doing. He uh, puts the train tracks down, he murders his unsuspecting son, and, and all the people on the train live and go free and never know anything about it. Look, that's a horrible misrepresentation of what the gospel is and what God is actually doing at the cross. Like Jesus says in John 10 that nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down by his own choice. In Galatians 2, Paul says that the Son of God, he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Like the Father did not murder an unsuspecting Jesus on the cross. Jesus freely laid down his life by his own choice. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they are one God with one will, one power, one authority. No person of the Trinity works apart from the others in salvation. And so, like, we need to know this is God doing this on the cross. This is God accomplishing this. It's not an unsuspecting victim. And so when we ask ourselves the question, what does God have to say about our injustice? Where is God in our suffering The answer is he's on the cross, taking our judgment for us. He's on the cross, not just suffering with us, but suffering for us. You see, the Christian God is the only God who knows what it is like to suffer. The Christian God is the only God who knows by experience what it's like to enter into the depths of our suffering. The Christian God is the only God who has ever known what it's like to be a victim of injustice. And the Christian God is the only God who loves us enough to come and suffer and take our judgment for us so that we would not have to suffer the ultimate suffering of being separated from him for all of eternity. And this is what God is doing on the cross. And so the cross shows us the grace of God in suffering to take our judgment for us, but it doesn't just show us that. The cross also shows us, it showcases the holiness and the righteousness of God that he hates sin. He does not think that sin isn't really that big of a deal. He does not just sweep it under the rug in the name of forgiveness. No, to accomplish our forgiveness He makes himself weak and he dies for us. That's how much he cares about it, enough to satisfy his own demands of justice on himself. And so listen, if you have experienced abuse, if you have been a victim of this, then the cross reveals the heart of God to you and for you. Because God is not like your abuser. Rachel Jen Hollander, she puts it like this. She says the cross is the ultimate repudiation. It's the ultimate rejection of the idea that power is to be wielded for the benefit and pleasure of those who possess it. Jesus, on the cross, God made himself weak to die for you. He became a victim of injustice to suffer for you. And he did this in a way without Uh, in a way that upheld his justice to accomplish forgiveness. And so because this is the heart of God that's revealed to us in the cross, his hatred of sin and the way that he uh, accomplishes justice and uses his power to serve others and forgive others instead of serving himself, then, then we should never minimize justice in the name of forgiveness either. If we do, we've gotten away from the heart of God. Justice must be upheld. God does not skirt justice to accomplish people's forgiveness. And so listen, if you have experienced sexual abuse, please hear me. 
God does not prescribe abuse for you. It is not God's plan for your life. God is not asking you to endure abuse. God is not asking you to just forgive your abuser. No, God is grieved by what happened to you. He hates it, and he hates what has happened to you. And listen, if you're currently experiencing abuse, and hear me, God is not asking you to turn the other cheek in this situation. He's not asking you to submit yourself to abuse. He's not calling you to endure and stay and continue to suffer abuse. You do not have to stay. And listen, all of us in the room, even those of us who have not been a victim of this, who have not experienced this, when we uh, see these earthly crimes take place, we all have a responsibility to take part in seeing earthly justice for these crimes take place as a reflection of God's justice. Like, justice for abuse will take place. It will be paid for, either on the cross by Jesus or in eternity by the abuser. But we want to reflect that as much as possible, even now. And look, to pursue earthly justice, it's actually loving towards the abuser. It's actually a grace to them, because we're not downplaying the significance and the severity and wickedness of their sin. We're not continuing to give them space to continue to abuse others and to continue to live in a delusion about the severity of what they've done. Like, we are loving when we do that, and and real repentance for an abuser, it looks like actually owning up to what you've done. Like, it looks like saying, I did such a wicked thing that I deserve to be in jail for the rest of my life as a consequence of what I've done. If I served in ministry, I deserve to never serve in ministry again. If I knowingly cover up abuse as a pastor, I've disqualified myself. I'm not fit to be in ministry as a pastor anymore. It looks like not avoiding the consequences. And so us taking it to the justice system and letting the justice system prosecute this is actually a grace to the abuser Because it hopefully gives them the space to actually recognize the severity of their sin and and hopefully truly and and really repent instead of us just saying, oh, well, we just need to forgive and move on. It's not that simple. That's not how these things work. And and so um, I, I think in light of this, because this text shows us the heart of God and his heart for justice, I think it's only right that we ask ourselves the question, how do we pursue justice? How do we reflect God's heart in this? How do we not end up like Simeon and Levi committing further injustice in the name of pursuing justice? Well, let me just give you just a few introductory ways. Um, One, educate yourself on abuse dynamics. Um, Two resources that have really helped me that I've I've drawn from a lot for everything we've been talking uh, about today uh, is a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice, and then a paper uh, by Jacob and Rachel Denhollander called Justice, the Foundation of a Christian Approach to Abuse. That paper is free. You can just Google it, and you'll be able to read it all online. You can get that book as well, but I would wholeheartedly recommend those resources to you. They're really just excellent on, on dealing with these Uh, issues. Generous Justice by Tim Keller and Justice, the Foundation of a Christian Approach to Abuse. Jacob and Rachel Denhollander especially have been really helpful in uh, helping me educate myself on uh, abuse dynamics and how these things work and how we cannot uh, continue to further uh, this pain. Because listen, I think God in his grace has over the past few years been bringing to light that, that we as the church in America by and large 
have been just awful on handling sexual abuse cases that have happened in the church. Like, gosh, it just fills me with a rage to see the way that pastors have covered up abuse and have refused to take it to the authorities and have tried to deal with it in-house. The ways that we have abused and sh- that we have shamed and church disciplined an abuse victim instead of the abuser. Uh, ways that we have uh, covered up for this and we've uh, just told the abuse victim that they need to just forgive and reconcile with their abusive spouse. Like when people talk about younger people leaving the church, this is the stuff that they're leaving over. This is the real stuff that they're leaving over because they see us when we talk such a big game about God's design for marriage and sexuality and to do absolutely nothing when we're confronted with a literal predator taking advantage of women and children in our midst. They rightly see through that hypocrisy. And so listen, I want you to hear me say, I am sorry for the ways that pastors and churches have failed to reflect Jesus on this issue and have been so far from the heart of God on this issue. And we have been awful. But I wholeheartedly believe that God, in bringing so much of this to light over the past few years, he's giving us an opportunity to repent and to do better, to not be a source of further harm. Listen, abuse is not just a sin, it's a crime. And so all of us, when we hear about these cases, when this comes up in our midst, all of us should educate ourselves on how to best make the church a safe place for those who have been victims of abuse and a place of safety and prevention so that this wouldn't happen further. And so I'll just give you one introductory way to do that. If somebody comes to you and reports a case of abuse, like your job and my job is not to adjudicate whether or not they're telling the truth or whether or not their story is credible. Our job is to report that and walk alongside them. It's not to tell them to just forgive and reconcile with their abuser. It's to love them and get them to safety. And so one, we we educate ourselves on abuse dynamics. But then two, if you want to pursue justice, stop looking at pornography. Pornography is is currently one of, if not the biggest fuel uh, for sex trafficking and, and modern slavery in the world today. Like when you look at pornography, you are creating the demand that the sex trafficking, sex and human trafficking industry is happy to supply. Like I, I need you to hear the severity of this. When you look at pornography, you are not just affecting yourself, you are, being a, you are willingly contributing in the trafficking of human beings and modern day sex slavery. Like it's that serious what you are doing. And so listen, hear me, if pornography is a struggle for you, and we have men and women available on our men's and women's care teams that would love to walk with you and help you fight against this in this sin. And I know, I know that it is not easy to overcome this. I know the shame. I know how easy it is to hide. Uh, And I know it's not as simple as you just saying, I'm not going to do it anymore. And so listen, we, we have men and women available that would love to walk with you and hold you accountable and help you and point you to Jesus and help you fight against this and help you truly find freedom from this sin so that you would not have to walk in it any longer. And you don't have to fight alone. You don't have to remain in hiding. And we will point you to the gospel. We will help you. If, if this is a struggle for you, please reach out to one of them or please reach out to me. I will get you connected with them, but you don't have to fight alone and you can get in the fight against injustice, and you can find freedom. 
And then third, step into the ways and the places where God has called and gifted and placed you to pursue justice. Uh, We talked about this a little bit at our last equipping event on the kingdom of God, Uh, but the kingdom of God, uh, when, when Jesus ushers it in and returns and ushers it in in full, it will be a place free from sorrow, free from brokenness, free from hurting, free from pain and sin. And so uh, we as the church, the task that Jesus has given his church is to bear witness to that reality and to that king, coming kingdom as much as possible right now. The church is meant to function as a preview, as a movie trailer of the coming kingdom of God. We are the one place on earth that is meant to show the world what God is really like and what the power of the gospel can do to transform, and what the kingdom of God is like, and what its values are. And so what that means is that we are called to embody, by the grace of Jesus and by the help of his spirit, we are called to embody as much as possible that reality, the values of the kingdom of God right now. And so just one example, the kingdom of God will be a place that's free from poverty and suffering and hardship. And so We, as much as possible, we want to embody that reality right now. The book of Acts talks about how in the early church, nobody went needy because everybody in the church was so generous with their things. We are meant to embody that as a church community even now, and we should be working to help alleviate poverty and help the poor in our own community because this is a reflection of the gospel. This is a long quote from Tim Keller, but I think it just summarizes it perfectly. He says, my experience as a pastor has been that those who are middle class in spirit tend to be indifferent to the poor, but people who come to grasp the gospel of grace and become spiritually poor find their hearts gravitating toward the materially poor. To the degree that the gospel shapes your self-image, you will identify with those in need. You will see their tattered clothes and think, all my righteousness is a filthy rag. But in Christ, we can be clothed in his robes of righteousness. When you come upon those who are economically poor, you cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you. And you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess, since God came to earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighborhood, as it were, and helped you, even though your spiritual problems We're your own fault. In other words, when Christians who understand the gospel see a poor person, they realize they are looking into a mirror. Their hearts must go out to him or her without an ounce of superiority or indifference. And so the gospel, it moves us to act. It moves us towards others. It moves us to do justice and help others. And and, and how that plays out, uh, from Tim Keller again, He says, in general, to do justice means to live in a way that generates a strong community where human beings can flourish. And so what that means is that we look at these places in our community and in our society where things that would lead to human flourishing have broken down, and we use our time and our talents and our energies to step in and fix them, to to promote human flourishing in that area. Listen, you can't do everything, but God has specifically gifted you and given you passions and has placed you and given you opportunities to do and pursue justice in the spaces where you live. And so it's going to look different for all of us. For some of us, our schedule is freed up in a way that allows us to serve at places like Operation Inasmuch and Habitat for Humanity. 
Uh, For others of us, we've been given a platform and a voice to help be an advocate for and continue to address the racism that continues to plague our societies and our community. Uh, For some of us, we get the chance to help teach and shape the minds of the next generation. For some of us, we're in a place where we can create policies and uphold laws that help alleviate injustice and crime and suffering and poverty. It's going to look different for all of us, and you can't do everything But you are called to do something. You are called to look at your time and your talents and your energies and ask God, where can I step in and do this? And so I'll just leave you with that question. Where is it in your life that God has specifically gifted you with and called you and placed you and given you opportunities to pursue justice? Once again, it's not like we can do everything, but we are called to do something. Like this this is an issue. This is. God's call on our lives as followers of Jesus. Like doing and pursuing justice, it's a biblical issue. It's not a political one. Don't let the the political conversation of the day take that from us. Jesus has called us to this. This is not a political issue. It's a biblical one. It's a follower of Jesus one because the gospel reveals to us the heart of God a God who so hates sin and injustice that he would take the payment for it upon himself, a God who is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus, and a God who through his cross is making all things new and restoring everything back to right. And so we, as his followers, by the grace of Jesus and with the help of his spirit, we are called to step in and to reflect his heart and to pursue justice and mercy and flourishing as we bear witness to the way that God is working to make all things new, we're called to step in. And so let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you um, for your word, um, even when it's as difficult and as dark and as bleak as it is in this chapter. Um, But Jesus, thank you that you don't shy away um, from the most horrific aspects of our lives in a broken world. And Jesus, thank you that you're not distant from it. You're not removed. You have drawn near. You have become a victim of injustice. You have taken our injustices on yourself to pay for them and to set everything back to right. So God, I I do pray for those in this room that have been a victim of this, that this truth would be something to cling to even if not a specific answer, it would be a hope to cling to that, God, you will make all things new. You will wipe away every tear. You will make every wrong right. You will accomplish justice. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. So, God, I pray they would cling to that in this. For all of us, I pray that you would give us a heart to want to protect and want to help vulnerable people in our midst, people who have been victimized, you'd want us to, as much as we can, be a place of safety and prevention so that these things would not happen any further in our midst. God, I pray that we would think of the ways and the places where you have gifted and placed us and what you've given us to do, and we would pursue justice. God, would your grace make us a just people, as we know there's nothing we've done to earn our salvation, and so how can we turn our nose down at others? And so, God, do that in us, even in this moment, as we respond to you. God, I pray that you would, in your name, amen.